Hello, Sex Appeal listeners. This is Kit Elliott, one of your hosts for this show. After an extended hiatus, Katie and I have reassessed our stance on the true crime genre as entertainment and the way it affects the real-world victims involved in these cases. While this show has always striven to highlight injustices and prejudice in our society and legal system over anything else, we still want to make some changes to assure absolutely no harm comes from the stories we tell here. So, now, Sex Appeal Women on Trial will focus solely on historic true crime cases. That is, trials that took place a minimum of 150 years ago. All of our episodes already posted over the years that discuss cases that do not meet this new criteria have been removed, which is the main reason for this announcement. Because several episodes were deleted in their entirety, some remaining episodes may contain references to something said in one of them. We apologize for any confusion or continuity problems this creates. We hope you can understand the reasoning behind this decision. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the episode. Please be advised that this episode contains details and discussion of violence. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to Sex Appeal Women on Trial. I'm Kit. And I'm Katie. Okay, I am so excited to tell you about today's case. Yeah, you've mentioned it a few times. I might have been talking about this nonstop for just like a couple months now. Okay, so it's actually going to be sort of a two-part episode. Not quite like our Lizzie Borden ones, but, well, you'll understand in a second. The case I'm going to be talking about today is that of Anne Boleyn. Katie, I assume you've heard the name before. Um, the first time I ever heard her was in second grade when my teacher was trying to be all hip and, <laughs> and telling us a hot gossip about <laughs> King Henry and his six wives. You want the tea the about tea. King Henry VIII? Yeah, but give me more tea. All right. I say this is a kind of two-part episode because while today I'll be focusing on Anne Boleyn, in a future episode I'll be talking about one of the other six wives. I feel like a lot of people are in the same boat as you and I were before I started researching these women a little more, where you might know their names, or at least that King Henry had a ton of wives, but not much about them as people. There's a rhyme that I remember learning as a kid in history class, but I don't know if it's something that everyone's taught. Okay, so the one I remember was, King Henry VIII, to six wives he was wedded, one died, one survived, two divorced, two beheaded. But I also know there's a way simpler one that's just, Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. And I think that's more popular. We do not condone crimes here on Sex Appeal. But gosh darn, don't we love a good story. Let's get started. The woman I'm going to talk about today, Anne Boleyn, was lucky enough to fall into the beheaded part of the rhyme. While she was the first of the six to have her cranium untimely confiscated, she was actually the second wife of King Henry VIII. The first wife was Catherine of Aragon. Wait, now I'm remembering there were a ton of Catherines in this story. Uh, yeah. He actually had three wives named Catherine. Catherine of Aragon, Catherine Howard, and Catherine Parr. I'll try to keep it from getting too confusing. But back to Anne Boleyn. Anne was born to Thomas Boleyn, who would later become the Earl of Wiltshire and Earl of Ormond, and his wife, Lady Elizabeth Howard. I have a feeling we're going to be hearing a lot of earls and lords and ladies this episode. You certainly are, so get ready for lots of people with important titles. Because of a lack of records kept in her church, we don't know for sure when Anne was born. The evidence that has come up in research tend to contradict each other, with people making claims that she could have been born anywhere between 1499 to 1512. 
That's technically a big gap. Like, that's two different centuries. Yeah, but it seems to be most commonly accepted that she was probably born between 1501 and 1507. Her father was actually a really highly respected diplomat noted for his talent for languages, and he was said to be a favorite of Henry VII of England. Her family overall was held in very high regard in the English aristocracy. In relation to Henry VIII's other six wives, she was probably in the higher tier in terms of having prominent families before her marriage. Anne had a pretty typical education for someone of her status, attending the schoolroom of Margaret of Austria, along with her four wards. She learned the typical reading, spelling, arithmetic, as well as more domestic skills like embroidery, manners, dancing, and music. She was also taught archery, horseback riding, hunting, and falconry? Is that like falcon taming? That's what I thought, or like how to handle falcons turns out it's actually a style of hunting that involves using trained falcons okay alternative use of valkyrie consider this they hunt snacks for you (laughs) you are chilling in your second floor room and you get hungry just send your falcon out the window and they'll boom they'll get a snack for you did they steal it from some unsuspecting person who just wanted to treat themselves to some chips maybe but the falcon is just doing his job ew these are barbecue chips give them back excuse you Excuse you. Excuse you. Barbecue chips are superior. No, they're the they're the worst. Salt and vinegar are disgusting. No, 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 yes, no, no. Yes, 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 no. yes. Salt. Okay, I think you're a little backwards. Salt and vinegar chips, the best chips. Barbecue chips, bad. No, bad. I'm doing a poll. We're doing a poll right here, right now. This so. is the last episode. We can't be friends anymore because you think barbecue chips are better than salt and vinegar. <laughs> How do we go back after that? <laughs> Back to relevant information. She was later offered a place in the household of Margaret of Austria, who ruled the Netherlands on behalf of her nephew. Anne was younger than the other girls who were offered this position, but Margaret was so charmed by Anne's father that she made an exception. Without going into detail about all the places Anne was able to live as a child and all the opportunities she was afforded, and there were a lot of them, I think it's just important to understand that she was very well regarded as a smart, elegant, talented, and charming girl. Though, it was also noted that she had a bit of a temper. Keep that in mind for later. Anne was brought back to England in January 1522 under the expectation that she would marry her older cousin, who was living at the English court. The marriage was basically just about settling disputes over land, property, and titles, which was kind of commonplace back then. Oh boy, nothing like medieval incest. Oh, just wait till later in the story. Oh god, no. Before the marriage between Anne and her cousin actually happened, her father decided to put a stop to the plan, thinking that his daughter could land a husband who was of an even higher position. Um, yeah, I think you can do better than your cousin. Uh, yeah, I sure hope so. And, well, if you know the story, he was kinda right. Anne participated in a pageant being held in the honor of the Imperial Ambassadors, where she danced with Henry's sister, Mary, among other girls. It was pretty obvious that Anne was the shining star of the event, and she attracted the attention of a lot of men, which was noted that she very much enjoyed. Around the same time, Anne got engaged to the son of an earl, Henry Percy, though the relationship was kept a secret. But, you know, secret relationships aren't exactly the most stable for long term, so the engagement was broken off when Percy's father wouldn't support them. Not long after her engagement ended, Anne entered the service of Catherine of Aragon, who, at the time, was the wife of King Henry VIII. (gasps) Scandalous. Now it's time for Let's Learn Something New! 
Do you like tall, intimidating buildings? How about large, scarily intelligent birds? If you answered yes to both, you should head on over to the Tower of London. Since 1883, though some suspect even earlier, at least six ravens have lived at the top of the Tower of London. Legend is that if fewer than six are living there at any one point, London will fall. Charles II was the first to insist that they be kept after he heard the foreboding prophecy. There are currently seven ravens living there, named Grip, Rocky, Jubilee, Merlina, Poppy, Harris, and Erin. Although visitors to the tower can see them, they only listen to and respond to the Raven Master, who takes care of them. Dream job, dream job, dream job, dream job, dream job! <laughs> they are fed a diet of rats, mice, and other meats, and sometimes are given the special treat of biscuits soaked in blood. Cuisine. Fine dining. Their wings are clipped, though not enough to keep them from flying entirely. They're able to leave if they want to, but their habitat is purposely laid with food and enrichment that makes them happy enough to stay. A few, however, have left before, and some have even been fired. One of these ravens, George, was relieved from his post as punishment for eating telephone aerials. Come on, George. <laughs> George, you have one job. George, you have family to support. <laughs> Your one job, just protect all of London. <laughs> This has been Let's Learn Something New. And now, back to our regularly scheduled crime talk. Fifteen twenty six was when Henry VIII noticed Anne and began to pursue her. Some accounts say that, at first, Anne rejected him, not wanting to become his mistress. I mean, there were probably plenty of other reasons based on what we know about him. Yeah, I can't imagine this was the greatest dude to be around. Fair assumption. There are records of love letters that he sent to Anne, including one that promised her that she could be his, quote, one and only mistress, which, ew. He talks to Catherine later, get over it, I only cheated you with one lady. My one and only mistress. <laughs> but like I said before, Anne didn't want to be a mistress, even to a king. Good for her. When it became obvious she wasn't going to give in with his terribly tempting offer, he proposed to her within a year of his initial attraction. Wait, isn't he married still? Yes, <laughs> he certainly is. Both Anne and Henry thought that Henry would be able to get an annulment from his marriage with Catherine of Aragon, but it wasn't quite that easy. Wait, annulment? I thought they got divorced. No, it was actually an annulment despite what everyone's taught. So the rhyme is a lie. <laughs> Henry VIII said that the annulment was due to Catherine of Aragon's inability to produce an heir, since all of their male children died early in life. Because this was way back when everything could be attributed to divine intervention, Henry VIII said that their lack of a son was because God was displeased with their marriage. What reason was there for him to make this argument? Well, Catherine of Aragon had actually been married once before to Henry VIII's brother, Arthur. But Arthur died soon after their marriage. Since the marriage had been a tool to secure an alliance between Spain and England, their families still wanted to figure something out. They convinced Pope Julius II that it was okay for Catherine of Aragon to marry Henry VIII, even though she'd been married to his brother, saying that she was still a virgin. Because Catherine of Aragon didn't have any male children by the time Anne came along, Henry VIII made the claim that it was because God was unhappy with Pope Julius II's decision to let them get married. Now, I'm no expert on 15th century British religion and law, so I don't really have an explanation for how this worked. But Anne and Henry VIII were married in January of 1533, but the annulment from Catherine of Aragon wasn't officially granted until a new archbishop was appointed in March. 
but I'm thinking maybe it has something to do with Anne not being crowned queen until June, but again, I'm not totally sure on the specifics. The following September, Anne gave birth to their daughter, Princess Elizabeth. But we all know that Henry VIII wasn't thrilled about having a daughter, as he was waiting for a son that could be his heir. Now we're going to skip ahead a bit to 1533. Henry VIII is named Supreme Head of the Church of England, allowing him to be the one to make final decisions on the validity of his and Anne's marriage. And in addition to that, Parliament passed the Act of Secession, stating that only the offspring of Henry and Anne can be considered lawful heirs to the throne. Okay, now that they can only have the lawful heirs, but they don't have any. Yeah, they kind of dug their own graves there. Now that we're a decent way into Anne's reign as queen, I want to talk about her relationship with the public. Specifically, how they viewed her versus what other sources say she was like, because this played a big part into her trial and demise. If you think about the immediate descriptors you might have in your head when you hear her name, you probably think of promiscuity, hot-headed, or maybe even self-centered. But it's important to keep in mind that her marriage to the king and status as queen was extremely controversial at the time. Not only was it marking a complete transformation in political procedure, but Catherine of Aragon, Henry VIII's first wife, was notably well-loved by the people of England. So you can probably imagine that her replacement wasn't super well-received. But if we actually look at court records, Anne seemed to make very genuine attempts at being a good queen, with much of her focus being on improving the lives of the poor. So you can be an amazing person, but if the public doesn't like you, then you're screwed. Your reputation is ruined. Right. As bad as things were for Anne from public treatment, her marriage to the king was even worse. Henry VIII had affairs and relationships with two of Anne's maids of honor. What happened to my one and only mistress? <laughs> you liar! <laughs> so how did Catherine react when she found out that Henry had an affair, and how was that compared to Anne's reaction? Catherine of Aragon knew to some extent about Henry VIII's relationship to Anne before their annulment, and it's widely believed that she chose to avoid confrontation about it. Does that mean she was okay with it? Absolutely not. Duh. But she kept up the appearance that she was none the wiser, which honestly might have saved her life. Because Anne, on the other hand, did not take it sitting down. She was furious when she learned about her husband's affairs and didn't hide her jealousy. Same as before, Henry VIII pushed the blame onto the fact that he was just trying to produce an heir because Anne was unable to. Yes, because that totally is how it works. Yeah, no, it's just uh, it's Anne's fault. He's just trying to be a good king. As you can imagine, the marriage fell apart pretty quickly. Anne was pregnant at the time, but ended up giving birth to a stillborn male in January of 1536. That's horrible. That must have been the last straw, though. Yeah, it kind of is noted as the beginning of the end. I said before that Henry VIII was having affairs with two of Anne's maids of honor. Well, if you know a bit about the queens, one of them might sound familiar. Jane Seymour. It's widely documented that Henry VIII not only was attracted to and interested in Seymour, but he also fell in love with her. So it's not hard to believe that that love was what sealed Anne's fate, not the charges brought against her. In March 1534, Anne Boleyn was accused of treason, with her indictment accusing her of, quote, despising her marriage and entertaining malice against the king, and following daily her frail and carnal lust. The indictment said she had affairs with five men and had plotted the king's death. Katie, I want you to read what exactly was being said against her. On the 6th October, at Palace Westminster, and on various other days before and after, by sweet words, 
kisses, touches, and other illicit means, she did procure an insight, Henry Norris, a gentleman of the privy chamber of our lord the king, to violate and carnally know her, by reason whereof the same Henry Norris, on 12th October, violated, stained, and carnally knew her. Among the five men she was accused of having affairs with was her brother George. Oh, God. <laughs> Listen, she didn't. <laughs> she didn't. So now, on top of the charges of adultery, she was also being charged with incest. However, of the 20 acts of adultery she was accused of, Anne had alibis for all of them. So, how would they still get away with charging her? Simple. Call her a witch. Okay, he, why can't he just be serious? Like, hey, I don't love you anymore. Why can't he do that? Why does he have to accuse her for all this horrible stuff? Why result in witchcraft? Because he can't admit he's wrong because the king is supposed to be all-knowing. He's supreme head of the Church of England. He has to be, it means like he has this divine knowledge. He can't admit he was wrong. He's tight with God, man. <laughs> he can't be wrong. Okay, I'm going to say it right now. I don't think Anne was a witch, and even if she was, I doubt it would have had anything to do with the actions she was charged with. But think about it. Hmm, we need explanations as to how she did these things when she was proven to be elsewhere, aka the holiest dude here could have chosen such a degenerate as a queen. Ooh, wait, 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 I know. Say she's a witch. Witches can do anything. So that's the only explanation we have to give. Genius. Anne Boleyn pled not guilty to the charges of adultery, incest, and high treason, but was still found guilty of all charges. While common practice for women found guilty of these charges was burning, Henry had an exception made for her, so she was sentenced to beheading by an expert swordsman instead. In the time between her sentencing and her death, there were a few reports of odd behavior from her. William Kingston, the constable of the tower, went to visit Anne where she was being kept. Katie, can you read what he reported afterwards? This morning she sent for me, that I might be with her at such time as she received the good lord, to the intent I should hear her speak as touching her innocently always to be clear. And in the writing of this she sent for me, and at my coming she said, Mr. Kingston, I hear I shall not die before noon, and I am very sorry therefore. I thought to be dead by this time, and past my pain. I told her it should be no pain, it was so little. And then she said, I heard say the executioner was very good, and I have a little neck, and then put her hands about it, laughing heartily. I have seen many men, and also women executed, and that they have been in great sorrow, and to my knowledge this lady has much joy in her death. There's a poem called O oh Death Rock Me Asleep that many believe to have been written by Anne herself during her imprisonment. In the last days leading to her execution, Anne continued to swear her innocence on all charges. On the morning of May 19th, Anne made her final walk from the Queen's house to the scaffold on the north side of the White Tower. She was said to have showed, quote, a devilish spirit and looked, quote, as gay as if she was not going to die. I feel like this is the definition of Big Dickens energy. She's walking to literally the spot where she's going to be beheaded, and she looks like she's just chilling. She's just, ugh, big Dickens energy. As she stood there, Anne made this speech. Good Christian people, I am come hither to die, for according to the law, and by the law, I am judged to die. And therefore, I will speak nothing against it. I am come hither to accuse no man, nor to speak anything of that. 
whereof I am accused and condemned to die. But I pray God save the king and send him long to reign over you. For a gentler nor a more merciful prince was there never, and to me he was ever a good, a gentle, and sovereign lord. And if any person will meddle of my cause, I require them to judge the best. And thus I take my leave of the world and of you all, and I heartily desire you all to pray for me. Lord, have mercy on me. To God I commend my soul. I don't know if I really understand. You said that she was very vocal about her hatred of King Henry's affairs and that she was innocent. I know, and while it's surprising to go from hearing about how she was this outspoken spitfire to basically saying that her husband never wronged her, I think we have to remember that her daughter and most of her family was still alive and needed to protect it. But, if you notice, even while doing this, she never admitted her guilt. Good for her. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sex Appeal, Woman on Trial. Make sure to subscribe and follow so you can always come back for more cases of Women on Trial. Sex Appeal, Women on Trial was brought to you by us, Kit Elliott and Katie Clark. Music is Dark Tranquility by Anno Domini Beats. Special thanks to Framingham State University's WDJM Radio. We would like to thank Melin Costello from MC Design Photography for creating our logo. You can find her on Facebook and Instagram under mcdesign underscore photography. Remember to leave a five-star rating and review us on iTunes. And follow us on Instagram at Sex Appeal Podcast and Twitter at Sex Appeal Pod. You can also visit our website, sexappealpodcast.weebly.com, for additional content, including more details about our episodes, like written transcriptions and pictures. If you have any questions about our show or suggestions for future episodes, please email us at sexappealpod at gmail.com. Thank you.